0: The Inksa Horizons Podcast, conversations at the intersection of science, society, and public policy.
1: Welcome to the Horizons Podcast. I'm Christiane Allen. Most of us like to think that we're rational beings and that the decisions we make every day or those made for us by governments are based on the best possible evidence for our long-term benefit but there's no denying that decision-making is hard work. First, while we recognize that emotions, norms, and ideologies all play a part in decision-making, we still tend to rationalize these as part of the logic of our decision. And then there are the trade-offs between what the evidence points to as a wise choice for the long-term and what we need or want in the immediate term. For the big societal decisions, there's also the not-so-small matter of equity and generating more balanced prosperity. As the world becomes more complex, so too do the problems we face and the decisions required to find solutions. What's more, this complexity is making it harder to agree on common ground as a basis for those decisions. Many societies are increasingly polarized and fractured along informational and ideological lines. So the capacity of governments to include citizens more meaningfully in complex decisions is both more important and more difficult than ever. Without understanding the values that are driving and dividing these debates, there's little hope of resolving them. And it is often in the most contentious debates that science advice practitioners are called upon the most. In this, they cannot escape the need to make space for human values in how they derive, prepare, and present advice. To discuss what's at stake, we've gathered some of the leading thinkers in this space. Associate Professor Heather Douglas, author of Science, Policy, and the Values-Free Ideal, Mr. David Mayer, Head of Unit for Knowledge for Policy at the Joint Research Centres of the European Commission, and Professor Asma Ismail, the President of the Academy of Sciences of Malaysia. Moderating this discussion is Associate Professor Manuela Fernández Pinto, from the Center for Applied Ethics at Universidad de los Andes. This panel was recorded at the INSA 2021 Biennial Global Conference. You can hear more from that conference in this series of podcasts or check out our website at ingsa.org/ingsa2021. But first, here's Manuela.
2: Hello, thank you very much. So our panel Evidence and Values in Policymaking is going to um, discuss issues that are related to the tensions between science and values in the context of policymaking. The role of science and scientific knowledge in democratic societies involves different tensions, particularly with respect to policy making. For instance, expert knowledge is required to address technical questions, but at the same time, the voice of the people should be prioritized for a democracy not to turn into a technocratic regime. Also, expert knowledge needs to be produced following the standards of scientific communities and peer evaluation, but those standards and evaluations do not require public consensus. In addition, we would like our public policy to be as informed as possible, but we do not want political discussions to be silenced by expert voices. There are thus tensions between scientific expertise and democratic policymaking. An important aspect of such tensions is related to the social and political values that surround the science policy interface on the one hand and the scientific evidence available on the other hand. So, we would like to open the panel with the following questions. What's the right balance between science and values in policy making? And we will start with
3: Heather. Thank you so much, Manuela. It's a real pleasure to be here today and to be on this distinguished panel. I am very excited to address this topic because I have spent a lot of time thinking about the role of values in science. For me, evidence is a crucial part of science. Science is the most robust form of knowledge uh, making that we have, but it is also inherently and properly filled with value judgments, value judgments about what science to pursue and when evidence is enough, when we have enough evidence to actually say a claim is well supported. So if science is properly value laden, then the question becomes, how do you have science playing a proper role in the political process of policymaking? And politics, as I mentioned in my think piece, is often seen as a threat to science, and it has been in the past. There are lots of cases where politics has been a problem for science, but politics is also really important as a place where public accountability occurs for elected officials and perhaps even more important where we have discussions about what constitutes the public good. There's been a lot of discussion this conference about needing to pursue science and science advice, the name of the public good, but what counts as the public good is something that is debated and reworked over and over again in the public space of politics. So we need to value in some sense politics as well. So how do we keep politics and science in a productive relationship. And looking at the ways in which politics is a problem for science, I think it's important to recognize that it can go badly off the rails when the politics becomes a matter of loyalty, when you have to agree to a particular claim or have loyalty to a particular person, and regardless of what they say, that's where your political allegiance lies. That is a big problem for science because science is about challenging claims and challenging individuals and critiquing, and loyalty is very antithetical especially when it's at that sort of granular level of a particular belief, a particular claim, a particular person or a particular party. And I think that's what we've been seeing a lot in the COVID crisis, when you have to have loyalty to a particular person or a particular belief, and that overrides any consideration of evidence or values that are concerned with the public good you end up with sort of really catastrophic decisions or really rejecting of science advice in policymaking. In the think piece, I call this politicization, or David mentioned talking about it as partisanship, that this is the thing that's really problematic and the thing to be avoided. So how do we actually build the trust in institutions so that We don't end up with politics that is only geared around loyalty so we can have these genuine discussions of what counts as public good, including the role of science and evidence in helping us figure out what's in the public good and what our values should be. We need to have those debates. They need to be contested. They need to be part of our open discussions but issues of loyalty and partisanship really damage and undermine the possibility of those discussions going forward to the detriment of both science and democratic politics.
2: Thanks, Heather. Okay, our second panelist is David.
0: Thanks, Manuela, and a great introduction there from Heather. The balance between science and values ought to be incredibly straightforward because they're very different things. There is this classical distinction between what is and what ought to be and science clearly can only tell us how the world is and it's the best account of reality, the best method we have for understanding reality. So that's very clear but it's also clear that science can't tell us how the world should be. Science can't tell us what we want the world to be. That's a normative question, that's a values question. So It ought to be incredibly clear that science has nothing to say about normative questions, about how the world should be. That's a question of values and democracy and all those things. And equally, values should have nothing to say about science, because the fact that you want something to be the case doesn't make it any more so. It doesn't change the results in the laboratory. So these two worlds should be perfectly able to live apart and each to their own domain. But of course, when you come to policy making, this this distinction, which looks fine on paper, is in practice, because of our psychology, very problematically entangled. Because of course, deciding what you want to do about something and where you should go depends partly on where you are and what the current situation is. So you need to understand what the is is before you decide what you're going to do about it. And this is where the trouble really begins. And I think it comes down to something quite fundamental in our nature, that even if conceptually how the world is and how the world we want to be are separate categories, in practice, our reasoning function tends to entangle these things together. If you follow the work of Hugo Mercier and others on argumentative theory, our reasoning faculties are developed to help us win arguments over values and win what we want. They're not designed, to use that uh, metaphor for, by evolution, to help us seek the truth. They help us to win moral arguments and to win people over to our side. And that is why we have the very difficult situation we see all the time, that people are constantly looking for scientific arguments to support their normative claims. And often you have a legitimate disagreement about where we want to go in society and what and different values, because we live in a plural society, but people do not accept that simply other people do not share their values, and instead they feel they have this strong desire to say, no, you are wrong, that is stupid, that is incorrect, that doesn't have a scientific basis. So we have this constant sort of bad faith situation where people bring claims about science to legitimate values disagreements, and then people bring their values positions to the assessment of scientific claims. And this is not indeed helped by the language we have in that there is a clear distinction between descriptive beliefs, our descriptive factual beliefs, and our normative beliefs. But nevertheless, we use the same word believe, you know, I believe gravity exists, and I believe that abortion is right, or whatever other normative claim you want to make. So we have in our very language of using this word beliefs, we obscure this difference between facts and values, and that is That is why all this is so problematic. So, I think the tricky challenge we face is to somehow find a way of disentangling the science and the values in these discussions, which, as I say, is going very much against our underlying psychology and nature, but in policy, in a collective policy process, we should be able to do that so that we can, on the one hand, have robust and effective discussions about which descriptive claims, about the science to agree. And on the other hand, we can also have a robust discussion about where the compromise exists, about where we want to go in relation to certain values. And that, I think, is probably the best way to find the balance. And I think where we have to start if we want to build the trust in the science is getting the values conversation right, because scientists will, I think, be trusted not only if they are good scientists and they work in an open and transparent way, but I think the reality is if people think that they share some values with the scientists and they have something in common with them in terms of their identities, then I think that's a crucial part of ensuring that they will trust also the quality of the science, because that's just the social nature of how we reason. And if you're interested in this concept of how values and identities play both into the scientific process, but also the policy process, we in the JRC have been working for the last two years on a report to help understand how we can more systematically bring values into the policymaking process. So look out for that towards the end of October. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, David. And our third panelist will be Asma. Asma.
4: Thank you to Heather and David for the introduction. Let me say from my point of view, COVID-19, as you know, is an unprecedented challenge that requires global solutions. And without doubt, COVID-19 has highlighted the critical value of science. And scientists are constantly being asked to give their expert opinion and guide the policymakers and the public in dealing with the unknowns. Well, developed countries are lucky to have science advice to guide them, but for underdeveloped countries who do not have expertise nor access to science advice, we'll always refer to WHO guidelines to guide them. And WHO, on one hand, always obtain evidence from scientists and then act on it. And because COVID is now known to be spread by aerosol, WHO guidelines include the need now to wear the double mask, the need to wash your hands, the need to keep our physical distance, the need to stay at home and the need to be vaccinated. And worldwide, we all follow WHO's advice based on scientific evidence. Yet, the outcome of the COVID numbers differ for different countries. Can ask why? Well, the answer in the differences in the case numbers between the countries is obvious. How can WHO guidelines be implemented among those with no running water, among those living in an overcrowded area where space per person is minimal? And how can they stay at home when their daily income depends on informal day-to-day work? And this goes to show that policies based on scientific evidence alone is not good enough you need to see it also from the social and from the spiritual angle as well. So making a policies, therefore must balance to me between scientific evidence and values like truth, trust and caring about humanity. In times of crisis, it's important that you tell the truth. It is vital to be transparent and honest about the pace of change of our knowledge and be clear where science could and could not help in a country where public lack basic knowledge about viruses about infections about vaccine you must engage them basically you got to communicate 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 if you do not communicate well you can offer good advice but no one is listening so instead it may even inculcate fear and distrust if you take the covid mrna vaccine for example this is an advanced technology an answer to the COVID problem delivered within record time by scientists to solve the pandemic problem. But without proper public engagement, we see fear and distrust about the vaccine. And this will be made worse due to the numerous fake information that we find now on the internet. You also need to build trust among the policy and the decision makers and civil society, among government, among academia, among the industry players and the international partners and collaborators. And you can build trust by working with them, understanding them, collaborating with them, share information and provide help in times of need. You also need to show that you care about how the scientific advice will now affect humanity. So to show the caring concept, the advice given must align the scientific and technological progress with socially desirable and acceptable ends. And to help overcome mistrust and build shared understanding, we need to perform responsible research and innovation that is human-centric rather than technology-centric and this needs to be performed in a collaborative, transdisciplinary manner. In terms of the elements of responsible research, this includes having creativity and critical thinking, integration of ethics, inclusiveness, gender equality, engaging the quadruple helix, that means the academia, the civil society, the politicians, the industry players, the government agencies, and incorporated also science education so that there is an understanding of the implication of the solution and open access to share this information. When we engage, when we sit down together, we will learn about the issues and challenges brought forth by the various actors. And we will continue to ask, is the technology providing solution or creating more problems in society? So in this way, we are working in a collaborative transdisciplinary manner to co-learn and co-design, which I call a more pragmatic scientific advice that will now align scientific and technological progress with socially desirable and acceptable ends. And this, to me, transdisciplinary effort needs to be done at the beginning. That means we got to engage with the quadruple helix at the very beginning and not have the policy first, and then try to get people to understand it later. The collaborative transdisciplinary human centric approach will provide us with the best acceptable solution that will hopefully deliver balance of values and scientific evidence for formulating policies. At the Academy of Sciences Malaysia, we practice the collaborative transdisciplinary human centric approach when formulating science advice to the Malaysian government. And so far we have achieved 80% and 80% success rate in turning this advice to policy.
2: Thanks Asma, those figures were very encouraging at the end. Okay so I would like to give you some time to react to some of the interventions to our panelists but let me say a few words that might spark some of the discussion. I heard David and I'm sorry if I, I oversimplified your interventions but I heard David uh, highlighting that we should make a distinction between the language related to values and the language related to science and descriptive beliefs. And and those are entangled in our policymaking conversations, but we should make an effort to try to make the distinction between them. Whereas Heather, I heard her saying something like, there are some times in which the languages should be entangled and, you know, there's room for political and social values to come in and say something about the science but sometimes they should not Mm -hmm. and then I hear asthma saying something like no policy based only if we totally um, disentangle them and we only take into account the science and the evidence descriptive evidence that is not good enough we need to align that science with the social and human needs and put forward this, you call it, the human-centric approach to policymaking. And so I'm wondering if you're seeing
3: distinctions and how would you react? Heather. For any given statement, I think David's right that there's a difference between a descriptive statement and a normative statement, between an odd and an is. But in the coming to that being a statement, even odd statements, have descriptive claims behind them. And uh, is statements have normative claims behind them. So in the construction of any given belief or claim, whether it's descriptive claim or normative claim, they're going to be normative and descriptive antecedents to getting there. So in the discussion, I think it's really important to say, like, oh, I'm describing the way the world is right now. Uh, you know, anthropogenic climate change is a reality, COVID-19, is a disease that's caused by a very dangerous virus. The vaccines are effective. These are descriptive claims, but getting to those claims to say that the evidence is sufficient, to attempting to understand those things and the way in which, attempting to understand those things is really important. And then in the discussion of what counts as a public good, what counts as a public value, there might be contestation about either the descriptive or the normative. I think David's right that it's really helpful to try to figure out whether or not the disagreement is ultimately really about a normative issue, like individual freedom versus public health. Big disagreement in the U.S. about these things. Or whether it's really about a descriptive issue, whether or not Masks are effective in reducing COVID-19 transmission. It's a lot easier to have the debate without them becoming tangled up. The thing I'm trying to point out is that they become really cemented together in a gnarly tangle when you have sort of partisan politics infecting it all. Then you can't pull it apart and it becomes really problematic. Trying to get at the antecedents of both of those while understanding that, you know, any given claim, we really do need to think about it as normative or descriptive is helpful. Matt Brown wrote a really nice book for this series that I added on the moral imagination in science, where he points out that value judgments are when we actually make a careful judgment, it should be empirically informed. And when we decide to pursue science in a particular direction, it should be morally informed as asthma's pointing out. You know, There's an interaction between the two that's really important, but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily the same thing.
2: Thanks, Heather. that was illuminating. David?
0: Good follow-up question, Manuela, and I think I agree entirely with what Heather said. In a sort of idealistic world, one might say, let's first agree on all the science and the descriptive claims. So before we decide what we're going to do about a particular problem, Let's agree all the science. And then once the science is closed, we, we've got our problem statement, we've got our description of the problem, and then we start having the debate about what we should do about it. And that is, I think, a hopelessly idealistic world, because that's not how we think, but also that's not how politics works and how events unfold. The inevitably, new insights on the science, as we've seen in COVID, and new discussions on the values trade-offs are all happening together in real time. The two debates, even as much as we may want to distinguish them, we can't distinguish them in time and say, let's do the science first and then do the normative debate afterwards. That's just never gonna happen. And therefore I think what we're saying here is that instead both scientists and policymakers and politicians need to be much more clear about labelling what they're saying by saying, now I'm making a descriptive claim about the science, and now I'm making a normative claim about what we should do about it. And at the moment, that is not often done. So people sometimes make are in fact making a normative claim, but it sounds very much like a scientific claim. The science says this, and vice versa, actually. Sometimes scientists are saying, you know, the report says we should do this, and science never has a should in it. There's no should out of science, but nevertheless, scientists claim that there is a should going on. So I think what I'm pleading for is for people to very clearly label whether they are making descriptive claims about the science or normative claims about the value. And that is incredibly important if we are to properly manage this very difficult psychological process where because of, if you believe, the theories on argumentative reasoning, we we so much want our values to prevail. We are so hardwired to want to win our arguments that we're prepared to bring any sort of argument, scientific and normative, to support them. And that's very, very powerful. And I'm also reflecting to something a sociologist told me, that it's very clear if you study sociology that there is this effect that any very powerful explanatory tool, so it could be the theory of how markets clear in uh, marginal cost pricing, or any other powerful descriptive belief or explanatory tool or theory, it very rapidly becomes normative. There's something in our nature that when a theory or data or facts seem to be very, very powerful and predictive of what things are going to happen, we somehow think, well, that's the way the world should be, because that's the way the world is, that's the way it should be. So we tend it also, as well as at an individual level, also at a sociological level, we tend to slide from scientific descriptive claims into normative ones pretty easily. And you can see that arguably with, you know, with Arrows de Bru's great paper on how markets function. And then suddenly markets sort of become a value and markets are good of themselves. They cease being an explanation of how the economy functions and they become a value. And that's an excellent example of this slipperiness in humanity between descriptive beliefs and normative beliefs, which is at the heart of the evidence and policy problem.
2: Thanks, David. So if I hear you correctly, that means that the issue is also for the scientists themselves. They themselves jump from the descriptive to a normative, and that's in part where the problem begins. Thank you. Asma?
4: After listening to both Heather and David, you know I probably am not in their league on this aspect, but... I am answering from the point of practicality what happened when we are now involved in providing scientific advice to the Malaysian government. We had previously done it in the academic way. The science will be there. We provide the evidence and we provide the advice based on the science. And what we found is that sometimes people are not listening on the ground and we have a problem in getting the politicians to understand what this is all about. And that was before. Then we say, let's turn this thing around. Let's have this engagement. And we do a lot of engagement to get certain scientific policies through. And this engagement, we do it with the quadruple helix. We do it with the politicians. We do it with the ministries. We do it with all the little Napoleons that is going to implement this policy uh, later if it got approved. So we did with all, and this engagement can be several engagements with more than four, or 500 people or even a thousand, but we do it. And when we do it, this is now where we begin to get success because the science is now worked together with the inputs from the industry players, from the civil society, from the academia, other members of the academia, and also from the social science and all that. And this allows us to now have this 80% success rate. So I see that is important and that we sit and engage in a transdisciplinary manner to now be able to provide good advice or good science advice to make things work for at least for our country to solve even the COVID problems. So I believe in engagement and having both the science evidence and the values together to make it work for the country. It sounds
3: to me like what ASMA has been doing is melding together science and politics without the partisanship, without the politicization, so mm-hmm. that it's really clear what the needs and interests are of very civil society actors, and so that science advice is aligned with those needs and concerns, with those values. It's a really sort of ironic thing that science advice tried so hard to be value-free, because it turns out that in practice, as I think asthma's experience has shown, that values are a source of trust for science advice, that it's one of the bases for trust. And so, for scientists to be more open about what they care about, about the values that are actually genuinely structuring their activities. And when they find out that maybe some of the values aren't in align with really important parts of civil society, maybe they need to shift to care about those other things too, by listening and by engaging, that that mm. actually develops trust more robustly, that that's sort of the creation of the trust in science advice. Correct,
4: yes. That's what's happening to us now, yeah.
2: I think it also builds into what you were saying, Heather, before about how when science is informing policymaking, it also has to be morally informed in this other way, right?
3: Yes, there's another really great benefit of being clear about the values in science that I think gets back to David's point. If scientists were less reticent to talk about the values and the moral issues that inform their work, it might be easier for them to actually be clear about what is the is and the oughts in their reasoning processes because they wouldn't have to say like, oh no, I can't talk about values. I'm not supposed to, I'm a scientist. That's a mistake. That's a mistake at a deep level. And I think that breeds distrust.
0: I could not agree more. I think the idea of putting on the white coat and saying, I'm talking from the view from nowhere as people talk about it. I have, I'm value free, I'm values neutral, is delusional firstly, and it's, it's denying our nature and it's, anti, it's an anti-scientific position and it's also incredible for ordinary citizens it's not plausible and i think ordinary citizens see that and they don't they don't hear that you're a neutral person they hear you're you're hiding what your true values are so i i fully agree that one should encourage scientists to be more transparent and open about their values and something we've done in some of our recent reports is begin with a normative statement to say look this is the normative stance which has informed the selection of questions we've decided to pick, uh, the selection of results, the way we framed the results, all these sorts of things, and try and say it up front. And then I hope that will give the confidence to scientists to be political in the good way. I mean, there used to be a distinction in English between, you would say someone is political, but they're not party political. In other words, they're not partisan. And I think perhaps that's something we have to recapture, that it's okay for scientists who are seeking to influence the policymaking process to be political, if we understand that, that they engage with political questions. It's not okay to be party political or partisan or way on one side or the other. So perhaps if we can recapture that, that could be really a powerful way to bring scientists back into this. It all goes back to trust. If you look at trust, the three pillars of trust are first, competence or excellence, and okay, the Nobel Prize or the cited articles, that's one thing. The second thing is transparency and honesty. So do you declare your interests and values? But the third thing is, is there some sense of shared values or identity with this person? And so if you never talk about your values and identity, you're not going to be able to build the sense of shared community uh, and shared values and identity with the citizens whose trust you're seeking.
2: Yeah, I think that distinction is similar to Heather's distinction uh, between political and politicized. Okay. So, we have questions from the audience. I would like to open uh, the room for some questions. Uh, so, here's the first one Our modern economic social models in the West elevate the authority of the individual over more collective ways of living, where our feelings are as valid as evidence is there a fundamental problem where it will be impossible to find common ground
3: well so i mean this is i think the damage that neoliberal ideologies that have said you know oh really we don't need to talk about public good because the public good is a myth has really been shown to be deeply problematic and totally undermined by the experience of a global pandemic there is clearly public good <laughs> there is clearly public health And I think one of the important things that politics is for is for discovering and debating what counts as public good across all the range of um, activities of humanity. What is in the public good? You know, it's very clear when you're facing a pandemic, not dying, not overwhelming hospitals, that's what's in the public good. Yes, easy. But what's in the public good with respect to education, with respect to economic activity? Um, These are things that are much more complicated. We need to have really robust debates about those things. And they're genuine debates. They're genuinely public interest things. This idea that somehow we can just turn everything over to the private markets and it'll be fine is completely misguided. I think the authority of the individual is uh, sort of the result of this neoliberal ideology that has proved to be disastrously a failure. And then the question is, well, what are the limits of individual freedom versus collective goods and public goods? That's the genuine political debate we need to be having all the time. And we have to keep having it because the scientific information that informs it is gonna be changing throughout our lifetimes. It's been changing throughout my lifetime. When I was born, no one cared, knew about climate change, right? That was a, not a thing um, 50 years ago. Now burning fossil fuels and the impact on the planet is a public issue with genuine public goods involved. It's gonna to continue to change. And so it's not gonna be like a fixed decision, which is why politics I think is so challenging. It's not like it's ever done because our knowledge of the world's gonna keep changing. And because we live in pluralist societies where debates about the right sort of values is always going to be ongoing. I don't think it makes it impossible to find common ground. I think once you start acknowledging there is such a thing as public good, you can start having the discussion. So I'm not pessimistic about it being sort of impossible.
2: Thanks, Heather.
0: David? So uh, this report that we've been working on coming out in uh, a month or so, we looked into the scholarship around values, and there's a huge range of scholarship from psychology, from sociology, anthropology. And one question we we wanted to ask was, is there common ground? And one of the heartening and optimistic results we discovered is that there is a range, there are values which we all share to some extent, but the intensity with which we share them does differ across populations and this appears to be happen with a certain degree of regularity, but the important point was the variability you find in values within any one country is as great as the stuff you find between countries. So there is plenty of underlying common ground, and the fact that uh, one of the main theories that we think is pretty solid, these are values that we all share, means there is plenty of underlying common ground There will be differences and there will be disagreements, but there is plenty of common ground. And one of the things that's particularly worrying about our current political situation is the rise of polarisation in our politics, and in particular the role of social media in polarisation of politics, and indeed which bleeds into the science, that social media rewards extreme partisan emotional opinions. That's what gets clicks and likes and is monetised. So the impression we may get that there may not be much common ground in society on values questions from social media, which is then echoed also in traditional media, is probably not a true one of the the real common ground that does exist in our society, which when you look at underlying values, looks to be much, much stronger. So uh, that's an optimistic message that we have got enough basic material for all get on and resolve our differences but we have some very particular challenges about the nature of discourse and in particular the impact this has on identities and we haven't talked much about identities but I think this is the moment to bring these in because it is in fact as much identities as values which is causing so much of the problems that we see at the moment if you look at take up of uh, vaccinations in some countries which is very closely correlated with partisan identity and this is the problem where the interaction with science comes in because you may choose to reject some science and you're not really rejecting the science itself it's a signal that you are part of a particular tribe that you reject this science this is really the joker in the pack at the moment around the relationship between science and policies. It's less values. It's actually the way identities, being member of a tribe, conveys significant welfare benefits on individuals, significant well-being benefits. And so, therefore, people are quite often prepared to sacrifice their commitment to truth-telling to retain these significant social benefits. And that's uh, the real challenge, I think, that we face at the moment in this field.
4: Asma? I would like to take up the question on values are influenced by major social pillars like religion. Is that all right? Let me just say it aloud so that
2: everyone can hear it. So the question is from Grant and it says values are influenced by major social pillars such as religion. How does this question of values into policymaking differ within paradigms like religion?
4: When we talk about scientific advice, so far, we've been concentrating on the um, health side and the economic side, always, you know, like whether we should close the schools, whether we should close the universities and so on and so forth. But what is not very much into scientific advice is about spirituality is about the social aspect and the spirituality aspect. I wouldn't want to call it religion at the moment. I would prefer it to be spirituality or universal values because that uh, will also play a big role. Spirituality essentially play a very big role. When you have a COVID, you have a lot of mental stress that is also involved, but mental stress was never usually addressed, right? So, but It is essentially, well, if you have a mental stress, then we say the religion or the spirituality part should be able to uh, help you or cope with that. But it is all part and parcel of the COVID problem. The fact that you have to stay at home, it results in anxiety, it results in mental stress, it results in domestic violence, and all that is all coming in together. But all these policies uh, need to now address all this together as well, and not just with the health and the economics part. We face this problem in Malaysia, of course, in in most of the Islamic countries, I'm sure. Uh, It's about the vaccination aspect, the policy on the vaccination, whether the vaccination is halal uh, for us to use, and that will affect whether we want to receive the vaccine or not. But when we sit down and we engage and with the religious leaders, and we tell them what this mRNA vaccine is all about, make them understand the science behind all this and end up, it's okay to use the vaccine from the Islam point of view. So th- this is where I say engagement is very important uh, so that the various values are now addressed together to make us allow for solutions to be there uh, that is now made possible among all of us to now use the vaccine uh, in our country. And I think the same with all the other Islamic countries, they, after they have discussed and they have sat down and engaged, they also found that it is okay, it's halal, to be able to use the vaccine. So there you are. Thanks,
2: Asma. It's very interesting how religion plays into these public policy issues in Islamic countries, as you were saying. Thanks for the input.
3: Asma's point
2: about engagement
3: is crucial. That's where you build trust, that's where you share values, and that's where you can share evidence.
2: I just wanted to thank our panelists for this very thoughtful and vivid discussion, and thank INSA for putting together the panel.
0: The International Network for Government Science Advice is the leading global network for those interested in the dynamics of research-informed public policy making. For more content, news and opportunities from the science policy interface, join the INSA network for free at ingsa.org. That's ingsa.org. And join us again soon for more great minds and great conversations.